Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Hey, Robert, I just got home. Uh, call me anytime, man. Uh, I want to help you. I want to help you. Uh, I'm okay now. I'm doing everything that's fine for me now. And, uh, but some people are pulling your legs. They give you information about me and about some other guy that I don't even know those guys. They are pulling your legs. They are stealing your money, man. Don't pay anybody for any information you want from me. You you talk to me and I give you for you, to you for free, okay? Okay, I'm home. You can call me anytime. Bye. That's a 2015 voicemail from Bernardo de Torres, a mysterious character from my book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. Google him, Bernardo de Torres. You'll read about a Cuban exile linked to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, someone who told confidants he had photo evidence from Dallas. He traded arms, drugs, information to the FBI and CIA, an all-around man of intrigue who commanded respect from everyone Outlaw, celeb, lowlife, fellow spooks at Miami's late great mutiny club, the subject of my book. I found Bernie more than a decade ago. We hit it off. He told me he'd tell me everything. And so I kept flying down to Miami. He kept stringing me along, just like I read he did with the JFK assassination investigation he claimed to want to help. And so that 2015 voicemail was the last I heard from Bernie until a friend in Miami called me last year to ask if it was true. The man of mystery from my book was homeless, sleeping in a public park in Miami. We scrambled to find him again, and we learned, to our dismay, that he was struck by a car and died alone, a pauper's death, for a figure of Cold War infamy who once partied so opulently at the mutiny, where hot tubs full of dom were the order of the day. And so I'm haunted. Bernie took his secrets with him. Who was he? What did he know? How could he possibly die alone and penniless? First, his friend and mutiny hotel party mate Owen Ban shares some of an essay he wrote for the Miami New Times. Bernardo de Torres was my friend, mentor, and at times my surrogate father. We met when I was floundering a year after I had dropped off the waitlist at Harvard Law School and suffered a nervous breakdown. Long ago, I spent $125 to become a bartender at a new nightclub called Club Alexandre, located in the Omni Hotel. The crowd included Miami's top marijuana importers and their crews who introduced me to cocaine. Soon after, I was dabbling in the drug business to support my habit I was even recruited to help unload a freighter of marijuana anchored out in the Gulf Stream. I quit the Alexandre in 1978 and took my act to the infamous Mutiny nightclub in Coconut Grove, which served as the model for the Babylon Club in the movie Scarface. One night, I was at the bar talking loud, and soon I was surrounded by five beautiful waitresses. An older man sitting nearby took notice and I was summoned to his table. Bernie was sitting there with his back to the wall at his permanent table, Johnny Walker in hand with three ice cubes. He wore a black polyester members-only jacket, a black shirt, and muted gray slacks. His cordovan half-boots barely covered his beretta. 
He unconsciously fingered the green and yellow Santeria beads wrapped around his wrist as he stood up to greet me and shook my hand. My name is Bernie, he said. Do you want to do some coke? Soon it became a nightly affair. Bernie and I sat together, table two, kept a room in the hotel above the club, womanized, snorted cocaine, and hung out with whatever cocaine trafficker or celebrity was visiting the club. He liked the fact that I was college educated and Jewish like his son. I befriended several members of the Brigade 2506 while working at Club Alexandre. Bernie rarely opened up. Eventually, he talked about certain events in his past, but left out what he did for a living. I was one of the few people he would allow to drive him home, since he was afraid of people knowing where he lived. Soon others at the mutiny became comfortable around me. Bernie told them I was his nephew. During this period of my life, my dad and I weren't communicating. In some respects, Bernie acted as a surrogate father. I was approached by top members of various smuggling groups, including that of Willie Falcone and Sal Maluga. I don't think Bernie was happy with my decision to take that route with my life, but he never criticized me. Instead, he offered me advice on everything from how to spot an undercover cop to how to kill someone with a single blow to the head. When I had a problem with someone owing me money, Bernie volunteered to go talk to him. Bernie and I remained tight for more than 25 years and I often turned to him for advice. I know without him, I would have been killed, ripped off, or sent to prison. In 1989, I was close to getting arrested and might have faced a 45-year sentence. Bernie concluded it was time for me to move on with my life. I was never cut out for the drug dealing, he said, and I was smart enough to make it legitimately. He had never told me this before, he added, because I wasn't ready to listen. And then Bernie calmly pulled out a copy of the file on me. I glanced at the information and was shocked. There was grand jury testimony about me going back to 1978. There was also a list of my known associates and a report of my near arrest in New Orleans two months before. When I asked him how he got it, he wouldn't answer. So who was Bernie really? He had once told me he had photographs of Dealey Plaza during the Kennedy assassination tucked away in his safe deposit box. He also admitted to a close friend of mine that he knew Lee Harvey Oswald. His list of connections included Mafia Don Santo Traficante and Carlos Marcello, who were both linked to the Kennedy assassination. He had also reported to be at Sylvia Odio's house in Dallas with Lee Hobby Oswald. Bernie took his secrets to his grave. His fall from grace wasn't poetic. It was, for the most part, his own fault. I am sorry for not reaching out to him in his later years. His death now haunts me. He was hit by a car last May while walking and then stayed for six months in hospice care before dying in December. I can only speculate about how he came to this tragic situation. Many of the people closest to him had died, or like me, 
moved on with their lives. I never again resorted to crime and gave up cocaine thanks to Bernie. Adios, mi buen amigo. Vaya con Dios. Joining me from Miami is political strategist, amateur historian, MSNBC personality, Fernand Amandi. How are you, sir? Robin, what a pleasure to be with you on this fascinating subject. I'm so glad you're going to be delving into it. Well, our paths converged on this. I mean, you knew I was interested in the Mutiny Hotel, which I kind of guess is in the shadow of your office and Coconut Grove, Miami. But I didn't know until a couple of years ago that you were also fascinated by this enigma, Bernardo de Torres, who was kind of known as the the dark angel of the mutiny, the uh, the rabbi of the mutiny, the guy, the fixer who could get you out of things. There was a legend that he had photos from Dallas and the Kennedy assassination, and he went out to lunch on that story for decades. And then you notified me that he was homeless, and by the time we had located him two years ago, he had already died. Homeless. Well, I don't think fascinated does justice to what I felt about Bernardo de Torres. I think obsessed, lifelong quest. Uh, it was almost like Captain Ahab searching for the great white whale, or in this case, the Cuban Bay of Pigs veteran who, as you said, suspected of being the dark angel behind the conspiracy to murder President Kennedy, which is where my interest came from. And that's why when I discovered through you his connection with the mutiny, which I only knew of tenuously, I was I was amazed because I had come to learn about the legend of Bernardo through my own amateur scholarship of the Kennedy assassination, where as you started to look at many of the perspectives and many of the biographies and books that were written, all those countless books in the cottage industry, one name kept popping up mysteriously from all of the people that I was that I thought were the most respected scholars of the assassination, and of course, that was Bernardo de Torres. So let me start with this. Who was he? I tried to ask him this point blank when he did meet with me, which was to you was really shocking that he, yeah, gosh, I've been waiting for you to call, buddy. And we met at La Careta by Tropical Park. He has a small dog. Um, you know, he ordered Cuban food. He had this enormous dossier of all these things. He said that Yahoo and Google owed him money about printing conspiracy theories, falseless, baseless claims about him for years. And Joan Mellon, all these people, buddy, they're making money on me, would say. But he looked at me and he said, finally, you've come to me and we're both going to tell the story. And you're like a son to me. And he was laying it on thick. But after several visits, he wouldn't give me the story. And then I, I suspected this is around in 2009 that he was just stringing me along, much like we read that he did with uh, Jim Garrison, the uh, Kennedy assassination prosecutor. Well, when you dropped, and I'll never forget the feeling I had when you told me very casually, you know, very uh, at matter of factly, you said, oh, yeah, I've, I've met Bernardo a couple of times. It would be like someone saying, oh, yeah, I just conducted an interview with Howard Hughes during the late 70s, you know, or, or I got, yeah, I, I used to spend time with J.D. Salinger talking about all his books. I mean, it was that kind of a, of a bombshell because I, I know that all of the researchers on the trail of the JFK assassination had been looking fruitlessly for Bernardo de Torres for decades. 
he was almost a, a phantom that existed in the testimony and in the documentation and a lot of the reports, but no one had ever made contact with him, let alone laid eyes on him. So when you said to me again, very casually, oh yeah, I, I met him at La Carreta and you know we talked over pastelitos and Cuban coffee, it was just a, a shocking thing to hear. And of course, I was tantalized and wanting to learn every single thing about your conversation because we just know that those things didn't really happen with Bernardo de Torres. Well, the hair really stood up on my back when he, you know, we, we went to La Carreta. He's like, buddy, let's take a walk. And, you know, he was checking out my license plate. It was a rental car and whatnot. Really tall guy, wore a Yankees cap, had his hair tied up in a bundle, uh, you know, really fit for his 70-something age. And he, I, I just remember him telling me that he didn't need Viagra and everything because he was known as, as quite the ladies' man, you know, 30 years prior to that at the Mutiny Hotel where he had a voracious appetite. But we did repair to adjacent uh, Tropical Park. And I will never forget this. As we were walking and talking and we sat down near a pavilion, uh, suddenly a bunch of black cats and turkey vultures were surrounding us. It's like he summoned them spiritually. Um, you know, and, and turkey vultures are a seasonal thing in South Florida. They need to warm their blood. They fly around downtown Miami and, and whatnot, but they typically are shy and don't come up to humans. So not only did we have black feral cats in the park, but vultures surrounding this guy as he's smiling at me and winking at me and saying, buddy, I've been waiting for you all my life. And I'm looking at him and saying, wait, what? it was too easy to reach you. I, you know, there was a, a cocaine kingpin, Mario Tabrawi. He's now famous because he was in the Tiger King, but he was also in my book, Hotel Scarface. He said, yeah, I could call Flacco for you. Flacco, that's what you call him? Next thing I know, I'm getting a call back. Buddy, I've been waiting for you. Where are you? Come on, come see me. I see him at La Careta. We walk across the park. He says he has a story for the ages to tell me. And he's an international figure. And no, it's not about Kennedy. It's not about this. And I kept taking meetings, kept taking meetings, kept taking meetings. I, I'd go down to Miami, see him at Tropical Park, see him at La Careta. There was a McDonald's nearby as well. I remember that he insisted that I drive my car uh, into the community where he lived with his sister because there was a, a, a video camera at the gate where he could check out my license plate essentials, even though that was kind of useless because I had a rental car. But the, the anticlimax of this is that I remember finally the last time we met was with someone who really was close to him, was another character in the book, Molly, uh, one of the hostesses at the Mutiny. When she agreed to meet with us, he made his case for $10,000 for his story. We were at uh, the Greek restaurant in Coral Way. And it was a whole different attitude from him. And he's like, buddy, this is my life. I need the money. You know, at then he had his, his uh, sister living with him. He claimed that, you know, he needed it to make ends meet. And um, I didn't know what was going to happen then. All I knew from the record was that he nearly bankrupted the, the garrison investigation by stringing them along for invoices. And it wasn't something I could do. And I was ultimately haunted to hear from you. The next thing I heard was that he was homeless. He had lost the house. And you and I frantically tried to find him. I guess it was that park. Uh, he lived in that park where he went to people. He got lunch and, and whatnot. This was in, in mid-2018. Then he got hit by a car and he was sent to hospice care. And, and he died a pauper's death near Christmas of 2018. There really was documentation over the decades beginning in the 1950s through until the day he died. There was no doubt that Bernardo de Torres did have a story to tell, 
And the question and the grail chase was who was going to ever get him to tell the true story. And I think that's what made such tantalizing fodder for when you told me about it, because you were as close as anybody ever came, certainly in the last 25 years. And and I think in retrospect about your story about the $10,000 ask at the Greek restaurant, you know, one always hates to hear that when talking to a potential source or someone you're, you're going to in good faith. But the story that he had, if you could have gotten or if anyone could have pierced through the veil of the of the BS and the dissimulation around it, was worth more than $10,000. It was worth millions of dollars. So here's the irony is, and, and I'm quoting from you know the, one of his quotes in the Joan Mellon book, A Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's Assassination and the Case That Should Have Changed History. Joan Mellon was uh, someone who worked with Jim Garrison and knew him. Uh in, in the photos of him with some other Bay of Pigs cutout figures, it said, they will never find out what happened. And I'm haunted by the fact that he kind of took this to the grave. He would return calls because, as he said, he was waiting for someone to ask him about his life story, i.e. to pay him for his life story. And that's the shocking thing to me is for years I thought he was in hiding. He was in Chile. He was in venezuela or something he's like nobody i uh I tropical park i go to Publix. other people <laughs> from the mutiny took his photo getting a sub at Publix, right he injected himself with vitamins he was a regular at the ventana at la careta he would occasionally as he did with me once he walked into as you know the epicenter of political intrigue in miami is versailles the cuban restaurant and the ventana in front of it where all the the exiles line up and have cafecitos and talk about the death of Castro and everything. He dared walk in with me. He said he wanted to walk in with me to the back of the restaurant. And the the nasty stares that we got, it was it was as if a serpent had walked in. And he wanted to do that for a reason. Uh, it was a, either a pride of place or a, a troll thing. And, you know, he wanted to have an interview with me. Of course, his back to the rear wall and me kind of being terrified are, are people watching us here? Are spooks? I mean, I'm just a guy writing a book about a hotel of which he's maybe a chapter or two. But there was that machismo to him well into his 70s. Well, you know, Robin, I was on the trail of Bernardo de Torres from the time I was probably 21 years old. So that was 25 years ago. And one of the ways I tried to track him down was through his affiliation with the Bay of Pigs Veterans Association. Uh, Bernardo de Torres was a member of the Bay of Pigs Brigade 2506. That's where his relationship, a lot of people believe, with the CIA commenced in earnest. That explain and what for the- our listeners, this is the CIA-trained CIA uh, 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 battalion that was uh, defeated by Castro at the Bay of Pigs. Kennedy did not give them cover. They felt betrayed. A lot of these guys were trained in Miami. They were exiles who wanted to get revenge and take back Cuba. And it was a catastrophe for the United States. He was the head of intelligence for them. Well, exactly right. And as you said, this was the um, CIA-conceived plan to try and liberate Cuba from the Castro regime by sending these trained group of Cuban exiles, um, numbering you know about 11 or 1,200, to basically invade Cuba, and once they got on the beaches and were able to penetrate into the the heart of the country, that the population would rise up to join them in a revolutionary defeat of Castro and take back Cuba from Castro and make it a democratic free country again. As we know, that never happened, and many of those Bay of Pigs veterans became not only embittered with President Kennedy, but but with the Democratic Party years later. But the Bay of Pigs veterans 
those that were a lot that are alive to this day and throughout the decades have maintained just a very close camaraderie. It's the ultimate type of brotherhood, the ultimate type of fraternity. And you could ask any Bay of Pigs veteran about this name, that name, or the other name, and they will tell you not only who about that person, they'll tell you about their brother, their sister, their mother, their father, where they grew up in Cuba, where they met in Miami, where they trained together. There's literally almost total knowledge, except for one man, Bernardo de Torres. And I'll never forget going into the Bay of Pigs Museum one day, which is there right off of Southwest 8th Street in Miami, where they have all of the photographs and the memorabilia. And it's kind of a living historical museum monument to these uh, veterans of the brigade and being in there and speaking to the head of the association at the time. And I said, hey, have you ever heard of Bernardo de Torres? And he says, Bernardo de Torres. In Spanish, he said, nunca escuchado ese nombre en mi vida. I I've always heard, heard the same response from people. I've never heard that, that name in my life. And it was so too said, out of it was too kind of formulaic. It was like they were reading off of a. a a, you know a bullet point list talking points that you're giving out exactly and the punchline to that story is i said well then can you do me a favor for a second can you follow me so i I escorted the gentleman who i was talking to who was the former head of the association who was a veteran himself i I asked him join me and there were pictures on the wall of the different big pigs brigade leadership groups in the early 1960s 61 62 60 i said yeah he's that guy standing right next to you there (laughs) and then he said ah no say no i don't remember him at all so as you said, there was this air of unbelievable, obvious uh, mystery. Obfuscation. Uh, obvious obfuscation is what I'm Obvious obfuscation. It. And it was, like you said, Robin, so well, every single brigade member I ever spoke to had the same response. I've no, never heard of that guy. There was this column written by a contact that you know, Jefferson Morley, uh, in May of 2019. I will uh, quote, From the top of the story, trained by the CIA and then cut loose, Bernardo de Torres exemplified what is known as the, quote, disposal problem in secret intelligence work. What do you do with the people who have been trained for covert action and violent regime change operations after U.S. policy fails or changes? How do you dispose of them? De Torres, who died homeless last December, was a flamboyant and notorious character. He served as the chief of intelligence of the CIA-trained invasion force that was routed at the Bay of Pigs. Taken prisoner, he was valuable enough to be ransomed for $50,000. Throughout his life, he dropped hints. He knew secrets about the assassination of JFK, although this was never confirmed. He continued to serve as a CIA in undercover capacity in 1967 after the U.S. government had given up trying to overthrow the government of Castro and he faced deportation proceedings, he infiltrated the JFK assassination investigation of New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. While purporting to work for Garrison, he fed information back to the CIA. The agency, it turned out, had a lot to hide about JFK's assassination. By 1972, he was selling arms and offering U.S. narcotics agents if they wanted to hire him an informant as an informant on Mexican drug traffickers. By the late 70s, he was a drug trafficker himself. So I'm wondering, Fernand, if the betrayal was that he was informing on uh, many of these Bay of Pigs characters who you know, who sublimated their training and their frustration and their skill set into wholesale drug smuggling in the 1970s. You know, it, it, it might have been that, but as I came to discover, as I would peel at the onion over the years and, and talking and, and finally getting some people to admit to me, and it didn't happen, by the way, until after he died. That's when all of a sudden that obfuscation and that convenient amnesia around Bernardo de Torres lifted like a cloud, and all of a sudden people's memories became very clear. But at the heart of it, 
Robin. And again, this is what makes his untimely passing and, and my envy of you for having been able to have an audience with him so, so great. They all say the same thing. Bernardo was involved at the highest levels of the agency. And all you need to do to understand that and, and appreciate that is that every single time the investigations into the Kennedy assassination became formalized, whether it was in 1964 through the Warren Commission or through the work and efforts of independent researchers or through the work of Jim Garrison when he led his prosecution of uh, Clay Shaw and other suspected contract members of the agency for the assassination of President Kennedy. Every time those investigations happened and people started asking about Bernardo de Torres, you see in the paperwork the CIA freak out. He was actually compelled to testify in 1977 when he was thought by some of the researchers on that House Select Committee to have been directly involved. And he was given the opportunity to testify only after being granted immunity, something that no one was given in the entire process of the House Select Committee on Assassinations with the exception of Bernardo de Torres. To this day, that testimony has never been published. It's still ultra-classified top secret. So, you know, again, there was a lot of BS and a lot of uh, dissimulating and obfuscation, but the truth of the matter is he is at the center of all of these elements. He is in the documentation. He is in the paperwork. He is in the photographs. He's always in the places where someone that you would suspect of having been involved in the Kennedy assassination conspiracy should be and others testify to. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I'm talking to Fernanda Mandy, a fellow uh, person who's fascinated by the enigma of Bernardo de Torres, my friend in Miami. Uh, you know, Bernardo de Torres died in December of 2018, homeless in his final years after sleeping in Barnes Park. This is a character who was a decorated Bay of Pigs veteran. And here's the deal: if you know, if you're a if you're a bona fide Bay of Pigs veteran, and again, he's he's he took a bullet, right? He he was infamous for not giving up names when he was in the prison. I forget the name of the prison in, in Cuba. There's an infamous story when he was a Castro captive and, and was bartered for $50,000. Um, you would think there would be some sort of safety net or pension plan, but if they weren't going to even acknowledge this guy, in fact, what happened was he gets hit by a car somewhere, uh, mortally wounded, he dies a pauper's death, and I, I, I think, I believe, I heard that his ashes were sprinkled over the, the outside of the mutiny. To think that this person might have been, as he always told people, um, involved with Lee Harvey Oswald, might have been, as he always told people, and as you relay in your book, in Dealey Plaza, taking photographs of the scene of the assassination before, during the assassination and after, which legendarily were kept in a safety deposit box. Uh, anytime his name was mentioned as a subject of, of an official investigation, Every agency in the country, the Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI, military intelligence would freak out over the fact that he was even being discussed or summoned. Yet here he was potentially walking the streets of Miami-Dade County as a homeless pauper with all of that life history and testimony, you know, floating between his ears with a story to tell that, according to you, he wanted to tell. You know, that's the stuff of which dreams and movies and novels and books are made and that's what made it so strange so tragic when we were able to get word of his official demise out 
at least in the JFK scholarship community, there was shock and sadness. And again, that same sense of frustration that no one was ever able to get him to tell that story that so many wanted him to tell. Fernand, if you do Google uh, Bernardo de Torres, again, I, I urge everyone out there listening to this, just Google Bernardo de Torres. He himself said the same thing at La Careta when I met him. Uh, the, the most hits that will come up at this point uh, are by an author named John Simkin at the Spartacus Educational Blog. He covers World War II history, Cold War history, and his posting on the death, I'm reading from it, uh, a few days ago, this is a couple of years ago, a friend of mine living in Florida sent me a link to an article in the Miami New Times. It took, told the story of the death of Bernardo de Torres. I've been writing about Bernardo de Torres for nearly 20 years, as you will find out if you do a search of Google. This has not always been the case. When I first created a page on de Torres, Google refused to include it in their search results. This was very unusual, as in those days, anybody I produced a page on would, within a few days be ranked first at Google. This is because of the large number of websites, about 170,000, that link to my website. After I complained about it, I was contacted by a person who established the website Namebase, a web-based cross-indexed database of names that focuses on individuals involved in the international intelligence community. He told me that his page on de Torres was also not appearing in the index. As a result, he established Google Watch to monitor the way it censored material on the web. Although Google refused to reply to my complaint about the non-listing of Bernardo de Torres, they eventually reinstalled my page into its index. Uh, however, this guy uh, with Google Watch was not so lucky and the once valuable websites name base and Google Watch are no longer in existence. Unfortunately, he gave up his fight against Google in February 2012 and took down all his sites. Okay, this is a person who has since died and a lot of this stuff ostensibly is going to be declassified. He you know, somebody is still walking on eggshells, uh, whether you're polling the people in the exile slash intelligence slash doper community, whether you pose the question to the CIA directly. Uh, there are only a handful of enthusiasts out there, including John Simkin, Jefferson Morley, Joan Mellon, you and I, who would dare, you know, go down these rabbit holes. What if it was a big kind of Wizard of Oz behind the curtain? thing where you know just the the seduction of the story is what he subsisted on until literally he couldn't subsist on it what if it's just a mirage you know that's the great question but the truth of the matter is even if it's true even if we were to say well okay he didn't he didn't know lee harvey oswald he didn't take those uh, uh, alleged pictures of the assassination scene as a photographer uh in dealey plaza on the day the president was murdered what is unimpeachable truth is that he was in all of these places at the time documented in history where someone who would have been involved in the assassination should have been. He was, as you said, the chief of propaganda and information for the Bay of Pigs Brigade. That is not insignificant. He was sent to penetrate the Jim Garrison investigation in 1967 uh, that was looking into the assassination of President Kennedy, pointing the finger at the CIA's culpability. That also was not uh, an invention or a fiction. That is documented history, as the papers and the clippings of the time attest to, and of course, Joan Mellon and others have written about ad nauseum. It's also a fact that you can find his name in all CIA cables as someone who had a direct relationship with the agency from the time of the Bay of Pigs, 
all the way through the House Select Committee on Assassinations. It was a fact that he was the only person granted immunity during the House Select Committee on Assassinations investigation into the assassination of President Kennedy in the 1976 through 1979 period. It was a fact, as you write about in your wonderful book about the mutiny, that he did tell people that he had relationships. He never paid for anything. He always moved in the shadows, seemingly with access to all of the riches and pleasures that the immunity offered, but never paid for a cent of it himself. So all of these things bear, I think, testimony and truth to the idea that whether or not Bernardo de Torres was directly involved or could be implicated as being a conspirator in the assassination of President Kennedy, he was absolutely a figure of mystery who had a story worth hearing and worth telling. I got to ask you, what about the uh, the family members you finally did get in touch with? I did read uh, John Simkin posted a dispatch. According to his daughter back in August of 2006, uh, Bernardo is divorced and has four children spread all over the globe. I understand that a son who didn't really know him got in touch with Owen Band. Have you heard from family members? You know, it's funny because when, again, when I got the news and it was the first confirmation, nobody had ever even seen or heard of the fact that Bernardo de Torres, you know, had died or let alone was not with us, but I had gotten the report and the report was not only a report of the accident where he was hit, but it was also a, a report from the coroner, the morgue in Miami-Dade County that said no one had claimed the body initially, at least. So it was, it was beyond dispute. The date of birth, the identification features, you know, all of that, it was Bernardo de Torres. So I thought, my God, it could very well be that even his family doesn't know what's going on. So I made a futile attempt to contact people that I thought were members of his family. And I actually got a couple of them on the phone. And it was, again, very bizarre, but very uh, consistent with the de Torres quest. The two that I did get on the phone, as soon as I said, hey, I have some unfortunate information you may not be aware of, um, Bernardo de Torres has been, you know, found deceased, confirmed by Miami-Dade County Medical Examiner's Office. Both times they hung up the phone, didn't even mm. ask or were curious to learn anything. It was two hangups at the same time. So we put out the crumbs. We see how far this this podcast trail can take us. Full disclosure meets Hotel Scarface meets the 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 mystery quest of our times, the the Kennedy assassination and the various people, uh, the echo chamber of, of conspiracies and everything in Miami, in Texas, across the globe, uh, uh, the, the continuation of the Cold War, the ghosts still linger. I'm uh, eagerly awaiting your interview with Joan Mellon. We'll also include an excerpt from Owen Band. I cannot thank you enough, Fernand. Uh, we shall uh, rejoin throughout this podcast series. Joining us is author Joan Mellon. Uh, she's authored 24 books, including uh, one that you must read, A Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's Assassination, and the Case That Should Have Changed History. Uh, Joan is taught at Temple University. She has written for various publications, newspapers, and magazines over the years. Uh, we're also joined by Fernanda Mandy, who's going to be buddying with me on this interview. We've been excited to do it. Uh, how are you, Joan? Not so well, <laughs> but... This brought me back to life, to remember Bernardo de Torres. Here's the interesting thing. I'm looking at the back of your book, and there's this uh, glowing review from none other than uh, Oliver Stone, right? 
who said, There aren't enough people like Joan Mellon in the world. Like the subject of her book, Joan has toiled away, driven by nothing more than her own passion for the truth, and emerged with the book you hold in your hands, a mammoth work that I believe will be the definitive biography of Jim Garrison. Of course, Oliver Stone was behind uh, the blockbuster film JFK. You remember the bench scene, Kevin Costner, Donald Sutherland, and whatnot. And I have to say, what's interesting about this is uh, Oliver Stone was also half of the mind behind... Uh, Scarface. And he stayed at the Mutiny Hotel in Miami in 1982 when he was coming off of his own cocaine addiction. He and Brian De Palma were searching for characters for their 1983 film Scarface. And no doubt that he probably bumped shoulders with Bernardo de Torres, who was omnipresent at the Mutiny Club, who knew everybody was there. And what's amazing is I go into this book and he appears in your book as a kind of a, a Bay of Pigs uh, Kennedy assassination cutout guy several times. So at the risk of always sounding long-winded, who was Bernie, Joan? Bernie was a CIA asset who was uh, inf- influential in the attack on Cuba the Bay, at the Bay of Pigs. And uh, I came across him because he infiltrated Jim Garrison's investigation, did his best to scuttle it, and then when Garrison, it didn't take long for Garrison to figure out that he was no good and threw him out. So I always had Bernie in my mind. I looked at the National Archives. There are lots of papers about Bernie. And then there's that marvelous quote that I, the most, one of my favorites, that Gaten Fonzie told me. He was watching, he was there because he was the chief investigator for the House Select Committee. And so on the day that Bernie testified, Gaten Fonzie was in the audience. And he said to me, you would never have guessed of all the Cubans that were in Miami why this guy should be important enough to testify here or something to that effect. In other words, Bernardo de Torres was a polished operator, clever, and uh, could conceal who he was from everyone, except Garrison, who was very shrewd. And uh, he came up in my research again when this character called Gerald Patrick Hemming, deceased, mentioned when, when I interviewed him, I was terrified of Hemming. I thought Hemming was going to be a monster. He wasn't. He was a, sort of a teddy bear to me anyway. And he told me about how he learned how to cook pork fried rice in prison and all this sort of thing. Well, when I walked into his little house there in Fayetteville, uh, he said, of all the people that I knew that were involved in the Kennedy assassination, the only one I feared was Bernie. No no further identification, just plain Bernie. And I didn't know what to make of that. What do I know about that? So I let that pass. And then several years later, how many years, I don't know, Jerry asked me if he, I could finance a trip to Miami for him. He was going to drive down there with his son. They were going to rent a car. And he was going to introduce me to one Angelo Morgado. Kennedy. Well, Angelo Morgado changed his name to Kennedy officially, legally. And then Angelo, Jerry was in the room and there was just no way he could be lying or making this up. It's too, you could never make this up. Angelo was cooking dinner. We ate dinner. And then he told me about how he went to Dallas and uh, he went to the house of Sylvia Odio with Lee Harvey Oswald and Angelo Morgado and Bernie. And uh, this was the last scene in the Warren Report. And Sylvia Odio could never, would never, could never identify the two Cubans. Mm. 
there's no way that it couldn't be true. That's there they were, Angelo Morgado, Bernardo de Torres, and Lee Harvey Oswald. Let me let me chime in before Fernand gets in. Uh, Joan, of course, you know, Fernand and I talked about how I was lucky enough to meet Bernie. He very charmingly took me in uh, several times to help me with the book Hotel Scarface. And he had this whole box of clips through the years. He said, Google and Yahoo, buddy, they got me all wrong. Joan Mellon should make all the money on me. She was mindful. He was mindful of the fact that you were out there and you were probably the leading expert. You were on to him. Um, and he he you know, he did rep- he did present me with this one Miami news clipping from the late 60s, and I have a scan of it. It says, Cuban exile guarded Kennedy. Bernardo de Torres, 32-year-old Cuban exile, says he helped the Secret Service agents guard President Kennedy while he was in Miami just four days before he was assassinated. Torres is now assisting New Orleans DA Jim Garrison in an investigation in the assassination. Isn't that dangerous stuff? I mean, if you're if you're intimately involved with the assassination, you're so cocky in your abilities that you would kind of get in and try to muck up and and uh, bankrupt the, the very person who was, you know, seeking names and trying to get down to the bottom of this? It was an assignment. He wasn't running his own show. He was told to infiltrate Jim Garrison's investigation. The CIA has revealed in many ways that they were very interested in Garrison, particularly Richard uh, Helms. Bernie was sent up there to find out what was going on. At that time, nobody knew even that Garrison was aware of Guy Bannister and all the rest of it, and Oswald. And, and Garrison knew that Oswald had nothing to do with the assassination. Joan, this is jo- Joan. This is Fernand. In in the saga and in the whole story that is the JFK assassination, you have so many names, so many personages. You know. Running the spectrum, you mentioned Helms from Ruby to Oswald to all of the players, yet Bernardo de Torres, to most of Americans, have no idea who he is, yet people like you and myself and Robin and others who are deeply involved in the scholarship keep coming back to this name. Why do you think he bears such interest and attention and should be more known from those of us who simply are unfamiliar with him or his role in this whole episode. Well, you have to remember that he was a CIA operative. He's not interested in being known. He's not interested in telling anyone anything that would pin him down. He never admitted, I I don't think, unless he did to you, that uh, he was Oswald's handler in New Orleans. So, but this guy, Joan, this is Robin again. He's just going around freely in Miami. He was miffed in the final years that I met him that nobody actually got in touch with him. It was fairly easy to find him if you wanted to be one of these Miami Herald sleuths or uh, Oliver Stone or anybody could have found him and even given him the chance to feed more disinformation and make money. But but what's odd to us when I talk to Fernand is that he died with his mystery and he died a pauper. He died a homeless person. He easily could have sold this story. He didn't want to come forward. There's a time when you finally have to, if you're going to ever tell the truth, tell it. Jim Garrison always said that. And uh, you tell what you tell what you know when you know it. And if he was interested in the truth being known, which he wasn't, he wasn't. He was interested in being an operative. He was a good one. He did everything that he should have done. He never revealed anything to anyone. But, but Joan, to Robin's point, at the end of his life, you know, he, here is this man who is sleeping in a, in a, in a park 
a public park because he's homeless, he is destitute, yet within his ears, in his brain, and in his memory, and in his life experience, he's privy to some of the most scandalous information perhaps in all of American history, the, 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 the conspiracy to murder the president of the United States with the operational hand of the Central Intelligence Agency. And yet the Central Intelligence Agency allows someone like that just to kind of be a, a ghost on the sidewalk there. What, what do you think that says kind of from a Shakespearean angle or, or just from the, the narrative well, itself? CIA casts you off when they no longer need you. That's how they are. That's who people are expendable. Don't romanticize them, please. I mean, my God. And furthermore, he was a very attractive figure, I think. And I, uh, I sort of wanted to meet him. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, there are very few people in this spectrum of people that you really, I uh, think, are attractive. He was very attractive. So he, he overestimated his own importance, didn't he? They didn't care about him anymore when they no longer needed him, but that's what they do. Can, I mean, if we look down and we go through the material, we'll find many examples where they just throw somebody in the dust when they no longer need them. That's who they are. But 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 if I it mean, if it was true, Joan, that that Bernardo was a central protagonist as either the handler of Lee Harvey Oswald or operationally on the ground in Dealey Plaza taking photographs of the assassination scene as he claimed to do and have those photographs as his insurance policy. Showed them, did he? Where are they? I, I've never seen them. Well, well no one ever has, but I, I guess the question, though, is would the CIA be so cavalier in allowing someone like that with that kind of explosive agency threatening to the existential existence uh, continue to just walk the streets of a town? homeless and desperate and willing to sell his story as he tried to do to Robin and others? But who was going to buy it? Nobody bought it. You didn't buy it, and I didn't buy it, and nobody bought it. And Angelo Morgato, I mean, he wasn't afraid of Bernie, and neither was Jerry. Jerry just was having a, a joke. It was a joke because Jerry was walking around with a lot of information, too. He died without telling it to anyone that I know of. And then I got really mad when he lied to me about Oswald appearing at a speech of Bobby Kennedy in uh, Florida somewhere. I can't remember where. Did you, Joan, Joan did you buy the deathbed conversion of, of Howard Hunt, uh, another one of the cutout figures who was an associate of Bernardo de Torres, especially at the mutiny? Howard Hunt later in, in, in his years lived in Coconut Grove and he was one of the regulars at the mutiny. Why would, was, was this also disinformation in 2007 on his deathbed where he confessed to being involved in the assassination and actually fessed up several other participants? They didn't care. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter to them. They can always find a way to get out of it. I don't see that as anything unusual. I mean, they're a really nasty group, and uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, they, they didn't do as much to me as I thought they might. When it said that somebody would have, somebody would have talked, somebody would have said something. Somebody did say something. Angelo Morgado did. He didn't care, and he, Jerry's sitting there, you know. He talked. How many people need to talk? So, so this stuff could still remain a substantially kept secret 57 years after JFK was assassinated. That enough people... Really? You don't think people care? You don't think if this were taken to 60 Minutes or Dateline, if Bernie, in fact, had uh, a, a lifeline, a policy, a fail-safe, in a, in something? Because I saw all he showed me were two checks from Garrison 
in his gun holster, oddly enough. And he went to lunch, we said, on this idea that he might have incriminating evidence. And maybe it points to us that the CIA has a disposal problem. You can't just let your assets go off and become freelancers and mercenaries and drug dealers. Joan, I don't understand. I, you know, Color me naive. I don't understand how this secret can be kept for nearly 60 years. It hasn't been kept. The people who so-called study the Kennedy assassination are too uneducated, too unsophisticated, too lacking in the understanding of human nature to really be of use in any... I, how many books do, can you name when you really think that if you learn something from them? Not that many. They don't have any insight into any of this. And certainly, somebody called me up about yesterday or two days ago and was trying to talk to me about Garrison Oh, I know. It's a guy that wrote a nasty book about Garrison from Canada recently. And the idea that he was, they, they float the idea, which is false, that Garrison didn't like Clayshaw because he was gay. And they don't know Garrison. They never even bothered to read anything about Garrison. So they don't know that that would never be Garrison. He was a true civil libertarian. He would, and, and he prevented the district attorneys from prosecuting cases based upon what was called then crimes against nature, namely gays. And uh, they would try to arrest people for being gay and Garrison never signed those bills. He never allowed them to go forth because he was a true liberal. And I mean that in the old fashioned 19th century sense. Joan, just real quick though, Given everything we're talking about, I mean, the fact that uh, Full Disclosure Radio is even devoting this episode to this man of mystery, Bernardo Torres, how do you think people should regard him? Is he a figure worth continuing to study? Should he be left now as a ghost for history and and allow just the story to fade away? Or or is there enough there that you do think merits additional interest and and, and investigation? Well, you know, there's a certain time when you really try to do what's possible. You knew him. You met him. I don't know which one of you did, or both. You met him. <laughs> you, you talked to him. If you couldn't get it out of him, it's a, put a nail in the coffin of that story. You're not going to get it. Some stories you're not going to be able to get. But Joan, I feel like he had every incentive as a person who died hungry and homeless to sell it, even a false story. And what's a mystery to us is you tell us at the same time that you know, he's intimately involved, and yet no one seemed to care that this elderly gentleman who was telling people uh, uh, famous stories about himself to get a subsidized lunch at a, at a cafeteria off of Coral Way, uh, and then he's hit by a car, and nobody even claims his body. Not anyone from the Bay of Pigs. Nobody from his family wants to answer the phone. We don't even see an obituary in the Miami Herald. Nobody's interested. That's very interesting to me that the, that happened. I, I, I know it happened, but I, uh, all right, that's it. Because the truth is that nobody was interested in the Kennedy assassination. You found the truth about that because I've written a lot about it. I've worked hard, 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 and I, can't, I couldn't get any interest in it. No one is interested. That goes with the things at CBS, if you're trying to go to 60 Minutes, or anyone else. Or students. I try to get students interested when I, I was teaching at the time. No one cared. It never. It, it didn't strike a note with anyone. Maybe because you can't prove anything that he, uh, some of his claims were never proven. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Joan Mellon, author of A Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's assassination and the case that should have changed history. You met uh, Jim Garrison back in, in 1969, and he opened up a lot about you, the frustrated investigation that he had. One of the characters in your book was Bernardo de Torres, who we're at posing the question today, where kind of full disclosure beats Hotel Scarface, my book, Who Was Bernie? We're also joined by uh, my co-conspirator, if you will, down in Coconut Grove, uh, Fernand Amandi, who's also been pursuing the mystery, the enigma of the late uh, Bernardo de Torres. Uh, help me out here, Fernand. I mean, it's I, I, I refuse to believe that it's just like we sound like a couple of ham radio, CB radio enthusiasts, some, you know, some quacks interested with this miscellaneous bio. But I would I would imagine like I would imagine for for a brief moment and Bernardo definitely wanted to stoke this like, buddy, you got the story of the century, man. Like, are you kidding? I found this in, in Tropical Park in Miami, an old guy surrounded by vultures and cats who knows everything that happened to crack the kind of one of the big political mysteries of the century. And he he didn't tell me he tried to kind of shake me down for ten thousand dollars. And then he took that mystery or that uh, uh, fiction, whatever you want to call it, to the great hereafter. So help me think this through for our listeners. Well, you know, as, as Joan said, I think one of the things that has happened, sadly, with the JFK assassination, with the passage of these now 57 years, is that most people now were not alive at the time, and the residents of the case is really nothing more than the events in Dealey Plaza. And to what Joan is talking about, the, the hard questions that lead to hard research based around facts, not so much theories, but facts, a lot of people don't want to do that work or, or are confused by the efforts to you know, muddy the waters with multiple theories and multiple angles and multiple characters. But that's why I'm afraid I... of CIA the same way people are afraid of Donald Trump. That's another thing. They don't want to alienate CIA. You know that I wrote a book after this called Blood in the Water. This is a book about a ship, American intelligence ship, that was fired on by Israel with collaboration of the American government. Whoa! This is And the, and the people, the, they were surviving sailors. And they don't like this idea at all. They don't want to alienate CIA. Why not? Whatever. They're military people. They're trained to believe whatever the government says. So when I wrote my book and I proved it up and down the street, they didn't want to, they, they, they sort of acknowledged it, but they didn't really, because they didn't want to alienate the government. This day, they fired on you. They killed their own people. Lyndon Johnson abandoned you. And you don't want to, and you don't want to argue about this. You don't want to say anything because you're, you don't want to alienate CIA. Well, you know, and I, uh, I finally gave up. I mean, I wrote the book, I published the book, it's over, forget it. But I know that and certain people who have studied it, like Congressman McCloskey from California, he admitted I, my book was the only one. Yes, because I'm willing to confront CIA. And no one else is. Gosh, my chief force was the chief intelligence officer of the ship. I'm not, I, I'm not here, I'm on the inside. And and name of Dave Lewis, and I wrote as much about Dave liked the book. He he also read it several times before publication. He corrected it. He told he gave me information. A, a CIA officer fixed it for me because I got mixed up about. I thought it was his father. It turns out it was John McCain on on the deck of a ship 
racing the engines of a plane and, and causing a fire that killed many people. And the person who pointed out to me that it was the son and not the father, his father was the head of naval intelligence in um, London. And this person who read it, that was a longtime CIA officer. She read it and she saw this and she said, well, it's the son, not the father. And I don't care, everybody's idealizing. Then, of course, John McCain died and he was a hero and a great figure in American history. All that nonsense. Wow. And, and, and they, nobody wanted to accept this story about McCain, this, the truth. So um, you have to be familiar with people that don't want to alienate the government, whether it's CIA, naval intelligence, whomever. And uh, they, they didn't do anything to me. They didn't kill me. They didn't make a car accident against me. But I just never got on 60 Minutes. I never, I never made a success. Bernie was wrong about me. I didn't make a million dollars out of Farewell to Justice. I made nothing. <laughs> I didn't do it for money. You know, in closing, Joan, I have to ask you to kind of tie it up. If we could have a seance and, you know, bring Jim Garrison into this interview. This was a kind of a neatly done conspiracy between the CIA and Cuban exiles to take out Kennedy, who kind of let everybody down at the Bay of Pigs. And they succeeded in the operation, an intricate, op- op- uh, you know, a lot of obfuscation, a lot of cover ups. And they gave this guy immunity in front of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And he just proceeded to live his life until dying this pauper's death on the side of the road in Miami in 2018. They weren't going to give out a pension to Bernardo de Torres. They never do. You have to get what you're going to get when, you get when you're doing your job, when you're working for them, not later. You're not going to take care of you. I, I, don't, I don't see it. So if, if Cuba's a lost cause already. Bernie fades into oblivion. And, of course, Oswald is still considered the assassin. Well, one thing I will say to bring this into the contemporary and in conclusion, this coming year, the last of the remaining files that a lot of folks thought President Trump was going to declassify, they are supposed to all be released on October 26, 2021. Within that cache of the files that the CIA specifically requested further uh, classification of and prevented their release in 2017 are the files on Bernardo de Torres. So Hopefully, at least for those of us that are following the case and following the life of the mystery man, which is Bernie, some of these answers may be found in these files. And these are CIA operational files around DeTorres and his secret testimony granted very mysteriously under immunity. One of the only people that was granted immunity by the CIA during the House Select Committee investigation of the late 1970s. I'll bet you he says you never get that material. Oh, you don't think we'll ever see that, Joan? Do you know that the story of the USS Liberty, the ship I was referring to, that incident occurred in 1967, and the truth has never emerged. And even people like Bernie Sanders and uh, various others never say a word. They don't want to know. Joan Mellon, thank you so much for joining us. The book is A Farewell to Justice. Highly recommended to read. Jim Garrison, JFK's assassination, and the case that should have changed history. Uh, Joan Mellon has taught at Temple University. Her byline has appeared in multiple, multiple newspapers. She's authored 24 books. You could check her out at joanmellon.com. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, guys. Thank you, John. Bye. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining me from D.C. now is Jefferson Morley, veteran journalist and author of uh, several books about the CIA, about the Kennedy assassination, the JFK Facts blog uh, as well. You can read them on deepstateblog.org. Sir, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Yes, and we're also continuing with Fernand Amandi in Miami, my fellow uh, sleuth uh, pursuing the the legend the dark legend of Bernardo de Torres. I have to ask you, uh, Jeff, I was really struck in kind of going back and you read the Owen Band obituary in the Miami New Times and kind of the uh, unbelievable kind of low-class demise of Bernardo de Torres. And you blogged in 2019 that this was indicative. Uh, your, your first paragraph on Bernardo de Torres' death is you said, trained by the CIA and then cut loose, Bernardo de Torres exemplified what is known as the, quote, disposal problem in secret intelligence work. What do you do with the people who have been trained for covert action and violent regime change operations after U.S. policy fails or changes? How do you dispose of them? Kind of makes it sound like a super fun site. Yeah. Well, you know, the phrase comes from James Angleton, the former chief of counterintelligence, and it's uh, at the CIA. And um, he was talking about, you know, what happened after the Bay of Pigs and U.S. policy in Cuba changed. Um, and it's a familiar problem in, in covert operations and paramilitary operations. And Bernardo de Torres really exemplified it because both because he was very deeply involved in the original regime change efforts, the efforts to overthrow the Castro government. But then also uh, when he comes back into uh, the story of the Kennedy assassination, when he becomes an investigator for New Orleans District Attorney James Garrison, and when, when he goes in and does anti-narcotics work for uh, the drug enforcement officials at the time, at a time when he was also probably uh, dealing drugs himself. So, um, you know, he really embodies what happened to the Cuban exiles who signed up to overthrow Castro and then were cut loose. Jeff, on that subject matter, the idea of the disposal problem, if you take the Bernardo de Torres story uh, in the way that many of us have, that he may have very well been Oswald's handler or someone who knew Oswald very well prior to the assassination. He may have well been someone who, uh, in his own words, was taking photographs of the assassination scene on behalf of the CIA before, during, and after uh, the events in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd. H how could an institution like the CIA just afford to have someone like this uh, as we came to find him at the end of his life, destitute, homeless, but with the type of explosive information in his firsthand experience that could have upended the very existence of the agency. Well, I think that um, they probably were not worried about him at that point. That's the only explanation I can have for doing that. Also, you know, they also have an incentive not to learn about him at some point. You know, when when you see Bernardo de Torres wind up being, you know, a major drug trafficker, it looks like, based on information that was received by the Bureau of hmm. Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, you know, at the same time that he was acting as a government informant. It's not a very pleasant story. And, you know, Bernardo de Torres is interesting in that there are several former CIA officers and, and, and assets who implicated themselves in the JFK story. And Bernardo de Torres is one of them. It's not a huge group, but it's a very interesting group. 
David Morales, who had been deputy chief of the CIA station, uh, made comments at the end of his life in which he sort of seemed to take credit for the assassination of President Kennedy. As you said, Bernardo de Torres said that he had photographs of the assassination, photographs which have never, if they existed, have never surfaced. Um, Howard Hunt made comments at the end of his life about the possibility of a CIA conspiracy. So Bernardo de Torres occupies a, 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 an exclusive group uh, there. You know, do, do those photos exist? You know, uh, they've never surfaced. So it's possible that they never existed. It's also possible that somebody could see a photograph and not understand its importance and throw it away. So, you know, we're left Jeff, with a little bit, bit of a mystery there um, in terms of, uh, you know, who he was. And what's interesting about him uh, is that... Uh, you know, we don't have, for example, compared to other people um, involved in the JFK story, we don't have his CIA file um, that has never been declassified. So um, uh, he's a he's a mystery man. We also don't have his testimony from the House Select Committee where he had the ignominious distinction of being one of the only people that the CIA insisted he be granted immunity of before question and limiting the questioning to the period before uh, 1962 and after 1967. So, you know, that's another area that I think calls for why so many of us are, are fascinated by this man. Jefferson, what explains the exile communities kind of almost as I say, it's like they're reading from talking points. When you ask people who are steeped in this, who know all the Bay of Pigs heroes, all the, the people at the head of the, the parades and the, the guys who spent you know, 10 years in Castro's prisons and everything. You mentioned Bernardo de Torres and they kind of look up and look around as like, that's interesting. I've never heard of that guy. You could tell that they're reading off of a, you know, talking points memo. And yet, as Bernie himself said, when I first walked into the Cuban cafeteria uh, near Tropical Park, he had a whole folder with all of these things. He could just, buddy, just Google me. Just go on Yahoo. Go look up Joan Mellon, look at everything they're saying about me. I'm a celebrity on Yahoo. He's like, he kept saying Yahoo's making money on him. So on the one hand, this not hardly, it's not plausible deniability among the exile community and even his family members. On the other hand, as I tell our listeners, just go Google Bernardo de Torres and that this man was walking with his small dog in Publix and walking across Tropical Park and bumping into all sorts of people. And he was out there in the open for the taking. Yeah, I don't, you know, that doesn't strike me as surprising. I mean, he's a he, uh, he's a covert operative, but he's a he's he's a he's a public figure and, you know, when you when you ultimately read his remarks about the Kennedy assassination that he had photographs from Dealey Plaza, a provocative claim, but one that's never been proven. Um his service uh maybe perhaps his spying on Jim Garrison in New Orleans in 1967 you know, shows that he's interested. And at that time, he was saying, you know, the, the account of the Kennedy assassination is incomplete and there might be much more to the story. So, you know, he was putting himself out there when he was alive, you know, that we didn't have the full story around JFK. Um, so, you know, his end was really, you know, was really quite sad. And, you know, uh did he if he had photographs in, in Dealey Plaza, did he not know how to take advantage of such an asset? I mean, you know, that that's hard for me to answer. It would seem like that would be something that he could have leveraged to his own advantage. 
Well, the interesting thing was he strung me along several times. He was very effusive and charismatic. He said I remind him of a son uh, that he's been waiting my whole life. He was initially worried that I might be with Mossad. I remember he told me charmingly. I was like, wow, this guy is really charming for a person who many people said would, you know, was, was deadly. Was They're actually really worried about this guy. And we were taking walks in the park, and it was very much like, no, buddy, it's a great story. It's not what you think, buddy. It's not what you think. And then, you know, the, the upshot of this is four visits in, he pretty much says, I need $10,000 to tell my story. I'm struggling. I live with a handicapped uh, sister. Uh, you know, it turns out they lost the house in the end, Fernand found out. And it was so anticlimactic for me. But a guy with kind of the, the, the U.S. history scoop of a lifetime, uh, it, you know, boiled down to $10,000. Did he not know how to get in touch with anyone at the Miami Herald or CBS in Miami or anything? Again, he was in plain view in Miami, and then going back and reading the stuff that that Joan Mellon wrote, and how he very nearly bankrupted the Garrison investigation, how he strung them along and fed them disinformation, and after a certain while, Garrison himself said his reliability is not established. Stop paying him. I wondered, rightfully so. I thought if he was similarly going to string me along and give me nothing, as he said, as he was quoted in saying, they're never going to find out. One of the other elements, as it relates to the Garrison case, is that. When you have Bernardo de Torres, you know, arrive kind of mysteriously on the scene, who and what sent him, I guess we'll never know. One thing that did happen is people in the Cuban exile community and former Bay of Pigs veterans who were suspects of the Garrison investigation started dying very violent deaths, uh, whether it be Eladio del Valle, who we know for a fact de Torres had a relationship with during the Bay of Pigs and during his time in Miami, and who he offered to help try and find per Garrison's instructions. And and then, of course, later with the, the untimely passing of, of David Ferry, who was one of the other subjects. So, again, he, he is around in some of these worlds, and not just after the Garrison case. As Robin writes about in his book, Hotel Scarface, he's in this milieu of CIA officers and DEA agents at this Casablanca-style hotel mutiny, which was the center of intrigue for a lot of these nexus of different worlds amongst intelligence operatives and and, and drug uh, folks of the underworld in the late 70s. I'll make an interesting connection for both of you to the extent, Jeff, that you mentioned it in your obituary for Bernardo Torres. As you wrote in the piece in May 2019, in the 1980s, when the CIA sought to overthrow the government of Nicaragua, agency personnel enlisted seven businesses and more than 50 individuals credibly suspected of drug trafficking, according to a 1999 report by CIA Inspector General Frederick Hitz. Uh, Interestingly enough, if you can connect these dots, uh, the head of security for the hotel mutiny was uh, Fernando Puig, who was a Bay of Pigs veteran who was stationed near Nicaragua, who became famous friends with Somoza, who was assassinated. And after that assassination period, and, and, and Fernando Puig actually ran the funeral procession for Somoza in Miami, uh, after that, he had staffed uh, pretty much the entire cabinet and the entire security personnel at the mutiny hotel. And so there's always been this whisper that it was a it was a front company unto itself the uh, former owner vehemently denied it but there were too many people that showed up I mean Bernardo de Torres had the keys to the room got to eat for free there was Sarkis Soganalian the famous arms dealer there was uh, one guy who I contacted when he got out of prison Edwin Wilson who was there uh, various characters Manuel Noriega the biggest cocaine traffickers in Miami Willie and Sal um I don't know what you guys kind of call this, proximate pl- 
plausibility or that these guys were all practicing kind of in a in a free trade zone of this, you know, as you described it, the CIA would continue to do business with Cuban American drug traffickers long after it cut ties with the Torres. So there was this bizarre symbiosis in the 1980s with the Cold War, and uh, we were fighting cocaine, and yet we were uh, incenting it. Yeah. So, I mean, a guy like de Torres is operating with impunity. You know, he, he's not worried about law enforcement because he, he has these connections. And so, you know, he can party openly at the mutiny because <clears throat> he's got some cards to play with DEA and before that, the Bureau of, of, of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. So that is a testament to his connections at the highest levels of those agencies. You know, he was a he was a high level informant. Uh, for the DEA at the same time that he was trafficking. So he's moving with a lot of confidence in that world. Now, what does that tell us about the Kennedy assassination? I mean, I think you have to be careful about making a jump. Just because he's moving in a criminal and conspiratorial milieu doesn't necessarily mean that he was moving in a JFK conspiracy. Um, you know, that's the that's the the place where we have to be very careful. But to implicate himself in the story is a very significant gesture, especially for somebody who was so well connected. I guess I would put it that way. I mean, he's told you some of these stories. Did he tell you the story that he knew Oswald? Did he say that to you? No, no. He told me that in reality, this was all a great international story. It'll be the, you just got to pay me, buddy, so I can tell you this story and we'll both become rich. And there just wasn't enough there. He didn't even give me enough crumbs. Maybe he was talking about his childhood in Cuba and how he was sick. Uh, I don't know if he had a disease and a, a family raised him and he fell out of favor with his father who informed on him. He had a couple of ex-wives. It just never there was never any path anywhere. And I wanted him to give me at least something tangible that I could go with. You know, he was there later in life. He he said I, I wasn't in any harm's way. He would check my license plate. He, he said he checked me in with his ex-wife, who was an attorney or something, who knew all about my byline. And then ultimately, it was a lot of sizzle and, and no cattle. Uh-huh. What about this mystique of you having these photos in a safe that everybody's talking about? Is it really possible that you're that hard up for money that you never cashed in this story? And what did you know, he say? Jeff, the Miami Herald... The Miami Herald never even ran an obituary on him. That's the amazing thing to me is I had to tip off Owen Band and the Miami New Times that excerpted my book to even bring up Bernardo de Torres. As, as, as Fernand and I know, you can't even get his family to pick up the phone and have a conversation with you. You can't get the Bay of Pigs veterans to ID him. So with a person with such a rich history, right? He was, he was cashiered, ransomed for $50,000, head of intelligence for the Bay of Pigs. You'd think that would be a huge obit in the Miami Herald, but crickets. So what's amazing to me in closing that he was, every time he saw me saying, buddy, I've been waiting for you my whole life. You know, it was like fate that brought us together. And yet he was never forthcoming. He never wanted to talk about Oswald. He never wanted to talk about why he was at the mutiny, why he lived for free at the mutiny. Was, a cut, was he a cutout man? I know he was working for the DEA. I know he was working for the FBI. Uh, various people were telling me, were whispering in my ears things about him, but there was nothing very tangible there. And I'm still just haunted and shocked that he died penniless and homeless and was hit by a car on the side of the road and had a pauper's burial. Yeah, you know, but I mean, I mean, my experience with somebody like that, if you had a personal relationship with him and 
you know, he was serious about making money, he, he would have showed you something. But I always thought at the very least, even Fernand, that there would be a deathbed confession. I don't know, Jeff, if you put a lot of stock into what his friend Howard Hunt and his fellow, you know, his fellow attendee at the mutiny sat with him at the mutiny in the early 70s said on his deathbed or, or Morales said on their deathbed or if that was all kind of uh, induced by somebody else or if you put any stock in this. Well, Howard Hunt, I mean, first of all, Howard Hunt's deathbed confession was not on his deathbed and it was not a confession. It was a series of statements that he made to his son, who he had been long been alienated from and was trying very understandably to try and reconnect with late in life. And St. John Hunt wanted to know about his father's involvement in the JFK story. And so in the course of these interviews, which I have listened to in their entirety, you know, Hunt is both trying to disclose and trying to conceal, you know, as evidence for a guy, you know, who was kind of a scoundrel, you know, it's very tricky to handle and it's hard to say it's not a confession. And and it's not, it's, he doesn't tie it down to specific events. He wasn't questioned very well. He wasn't questioned by people who knew the record of his career, for example, or knew the JFK story in detail. And so he was never pinned down on details. What he said was very suggestive and interesting. And the fact that he, a, a, a true insider who knew the underbelly of the CIA, like few others, the fact that he said it is very significant. But, you know, the the idea of the deathbed confession is a little bit of like a Hollywood conceit. And it tends to creep into our thinking about intelligence matters and shape our thinking and it's not really the way things work. And so, you know, I'm not surprised that there wasn't a deathbed confession. If you were in your right mind and you had, uh, you know, important information about the JFK story, the most sensible thing to do is to shut up. You know, it's it's a it's still a very sensitive subject. Uh, uh, it's there's still lots of classified information around it. Um, that's always been true from the from the moment it happened. And so, you know, the fact that people don't talk, that doesn't surprise me one bit. It, that's a, the most expectable thing that, that you could, that's the most likely thing that you can expect to happen. Well, Jeff, on that note, my final question, when you have someone like a Bernardo de Torres who, you know, like in Bob Dylan-esque terms, you don't know if he's the real McCoy or the jester and the joker and who unfortunately is no more, what is the way to try and either document these things or is it just best and left this as a, as a history mystery that will never be resolved in, in our life? Well, I think that, you know, he, he's somebody who implicated himself in the JFK story. Based on the paper trail we have, he's a significant figure involved in the Garrison investigation. So I think that his, you know, we have another round of JFK uh, file disclosures that are supposed to come in o next October. Hopefully, President Biden will uh, release all of the JFK records. But, you know, Bernardo de Torres, you know, CIA records belong in the JFK collection. The, the JFK Records Act says that all assassination related material should be public. And, you know, D D Bernardo de Torres personnel file, certainly for the years 1963, is an assassination related record. So, you know, let's see it. I think that's one thing. You know, we don't have to speculate. Let's have full disclosure. I think that's one thing that's essential. And he's an, you know, he's an important figure. Is he the key to the case? 
you know, like you're saying, he, he's a difficult figure. He's, he's a hard person to know, you know, for sure what was going on. He's a tough customer, worked on the, you know, the wrong side of the law for a long time. So, you know, he's, he's very interesting and there's still stuff that's hidden about him. So we should know it. I think that's what I, the way I would put it. I'd like to thank Jefferson Morley. He is a blogger at JFK Facts. He is the author of uh, many books, including one on Kindle Morley versus the CIA, my unfinished JFK investigation veteran reporter. Your byline has appeared in the Washington Post and elsewhere. Uh, sir, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for having me. Very interesting discussion. I hope we can continue it. Full disclosure, you can listen to the extended podcast of this episode at fullderadio.com. Spotify, and NPR One. Please subscribe and rate us. Special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and Fernanda Mandy. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. More on the book at HotelScarface.com. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. <laughs>